Hello and welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement and military technology. We are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, NAMO. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, Senior Editor Naval, and in the news this week, it has emerged that the US DOD has established five new ethical principles to operate in a future where AI technologies are fielded at scale. This follows an 18-month development effort. Implementation will be key with the military preparing for a sustained and thorough process. Uh, a steering group with the US DOD will provide procurement guidance, uh, test and evaluation capabilities, training strategies and a range of other measures. What is clear is that the use of AI uh, presents ethical ambiguities, risks and unique challenges for all the services. Also in the US, efforts continue to protect military UAV operations from electromagnetic attack. DARPA is bringing its Collaborative Operations in Denied Environments, or CODE, initiative to a conclusion with a program transitioning to NAVAIR supervision. CODE software will allow a UAV to retain its mission data and continue to perform tasks even if the electromagnetic environment becomes contested or congested. No details have been released as to when the program might conclude, although it is reasonable to assume that elements of the code software may begin to transition to existing and new UAVs over the coming years. In Europe, NATO held a virtual press conference to launch its latest annual report, which outlined some of the impact the COVID-19 pandemic was having on the Alliance and efforts to mitigate its spread at its Brussels HQ. Let's listen to a clip from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. When we speak about the long-term consequences, uh, that is uh, too early to uh, say anything with certainty about uh, uh, what the long-term consequences uh, will uh, be. When NATO allies decided uh, to invest more in defense, they did so uh, because we live in a more uncertain, more unpredictable uh, world, and therefore we need to invest more in defense. This has not changed. So I expect allies to stay committed uh, to investing more in our security. And by investing more in our security, in our armed forces, we're also providing surge uh, capacity for all our societies to deal with unforeseen uh, events, crisis, natural disasters, as we, uh, for instance, see now. Because we see that in uh, many NATO allied countries, the armed forces are actually providing support to the civilian society. By investing in our military, we also provide a capacity which has proven useful in supporting the civil society dealing with crises like the corona crisis. Moving on, the Czech Republic is improving the mobility and situational awareness of its ground forces. The Czech MOD has announced the delivery of four new command staff and communication variants of the 8x8 Panda 2 to provide better communication on the battlefield. The vehicles were procured under a $650 million contract awarded to Tatra Defence Vehicle in 2017. On the naval side, uh, senior former UK defence officials have said that the country should renew its MCM fleet once the current Hunt and Sandown classes leave service, given the importance of their role in the Arabian Gulf in offering a key capability that its US ally relies heavily upon. The Royal Navy operates two Hunt-class and two Sandown-class MCM vessels in the Gulf with the primary role of defeating any attempted mining of the strategic Strait of Hormuz, through which much of the world's oil is carried. This is a crucial task given the UK's demand for resources and the 39 million tonnes of oil imported into the country each year. Just six of the ageing Hunt-class are still in service following the decommissioning of Aveston and Quorn in 2017, with the oldest remaining vessel, HMS Ledbury, having accumulated 39 years of service to date. Mark Kansian, senior advisor with the US-based Centre for Strategic and International Studies, told Shepard that the US had, for a long time, counted on its allies to provide MCM capabilities. On the air side, this week, the German, the German MOD and industrial base reported that key domestic procurements continue to run as scheduled, although the outbreak of COVID-19 is causing catastrophic disruption to international operations. To discuss this, I'm joined by air editor Tim Martin. Tim, hi. Hi, Rich. So, Tim, this week you took a look at the, the, the implications for the German MOD with the, with the COVID-19 uh, virus and the potential changes to key acquisitions. What more can you tell us about this? So, I suppose probably first worth pointing out uh, in terms of operationally, uh, the Army are assisting um, on, with healthcare, assisting healthcare services um, by 
but mainly through uh, medical equipment, by transport of the medical equipment, I should say, um, and also helping to set up uh, testing sites um, for the, the virus. And then wider issues from the government kind of include temporary restriction on cor- cross-border traffic from France, Austria, uh, Luxembourg, Switzerland and Denmark. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, uh, at an acquisition level as well, Germany are, are saying there's there's uh, no uh, substantial changes to procurement. Uh, but I dug into that a little bit uh, deeper because I asked some from industry about what's been happening at their level. Uh, and so, for example, um, you know, we're talking in terms of what Germany are, are looking for uh, and what they're moving through uh, from a procurement point of view. We're really talking about the Tornado fighter jet replacement here, which is critical at the moment. New heavy lift helicopters as well. Uh, and then F-125 uh, frigates as well on the naval side. Um, so, yeah, I guess if we begin with Tornado, it's, as we know, a legacy fighter and uh, Eurofighter and the F-18 are in play to um, to to put forward um, an aircraft uh, as, you know, to replace it. Uh, and according to Airbus, that hasn't, I mean, they didn't say this, but I'm reading between the lines that uh, the contract decision award that was due to be to happen in, at the end of March uh, at the latest um, hasn't quite gone ahead to schedule because they've said that um, from from what they understand, there's not going to be any imminent decision being announced on that front. Um, so, that is a, a small suggestion here that uh, you know that behind uh, behind the scenes all isn't too well on the procurement front, and as you say, that's despite uh, words kind of to the contrary from the German MOD who have uh, expressly said that there's no uh, no major changes happening to major uh, timelines as far as they're concerned, and that's also uh, haven't been in discussions with their main suppliers and uh, partners. What about on the on the, the 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 rotary side of things? Obviously, Germany's looking to get some key heavy lift rotary. So, any 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 impact on COVID nineteen on, on on those procurement processes? There, there doesn't appear to be at the moment because, as we know, the the bids have made their way to the German MOD from both Boeing and from uh, Sikorsky. So, Boeing pitching with the Chinook, of course, and uh, Sikorsky with the fifty three K King Stallion. Um, so. Uh, there's a wide window here as well on that one because the contract award isn't until 2021. So um, given the fact that that most of the uh, main developments on that on that front have already now happened in terms of um, the request for information and the proposals, um, you know, you would you'd have to think that uh, that the 2021 uh, date uh, probably perhaps if it is delayed slightly and uh, would be understandable but at the moment there, there doesn't appear to be uh, anything out of the ordinary on, on that one okay what about on, on on the naval side we spoke last week um about the impact that covid19 is having on some of the some of the shipyards like fincantieri and navantia and some shipyards here in the uk um what did tkms have to say for themselves on the on the f125 yep so they said it's in effect business as usual uh, they've been in direct contact with the government and taken all necessary precautions to maintain high standards of hygiene um but shipbuilding is going ahead as planned and they expect that the the third frigate from the f125 uh, five program and, and the fourth will be liver- delivered uh, second half of uh, 2020 for the third and in 2021 then for the fourth uh, and yeah that's I mean I was in direct contact with uh, TKM, TKMS and, and that's kind of really what they they had to say and I suppose though what is probably worth mentioning is the fact that the uh, the site for the F125 uh, build is in Hamburg and Hamburg has been um, proportionally hit very hard with the, the coronavirus um, across, um, uh, you know, compared to other places in Germany. Um, so uh, not that uh, I'm kind of uh, surmising from that, not that this is uh, something that TKMS have come forward and said, but uh, you would have to think that there's extremely stringent uh, health protocols in place, um, given the fact that, um, yeah, Hamburg, as I say, has been um, very severely uh, affected. And in terms of uh, the, the numbers of inf- infections that have been reported by by, uh, by area in Germany. I mean, it would be a, a, a significant industrial effort for TKMS to turn that program around while at the same time having to contend with potential uh, repercussions with COVID-19 because the first the first one or two uh, ships in that build suffered through some faulty hardware and software. So 
uh, as I say, that'd, that'd be a, a pretty, a pretty remarkable turnaround in the face of what looks like a pretty, a pretty uh, adverse working environment for the for the company, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think probably the, on the management side, they're they're hoping, you know, keeping their fingers crossed that, um, you know, the what the outside observers are suggesting, you know, there's going to be prolonged impact here, that uh, it'll be kept to, to a minimum because, you know, as you mentioned on, on the uh, the problems um, previously, uh, the the German Navy had uh, returned the, the first in class, uh, the F-125 of the F-125 previously. Um, so I, I think they're certainly going to be looking at this and um, making sure that TKMS are, are focused and that the, the deadlines are met, particularly after the problems that, that you've mentioned previously. So you'd, you'd imagine then that uh, there's there's a lot riding on this and that, uh, you know, the, they'll see through the storm and uh, come out the other end uh, okay. Any other signs that difficulties uh, might lie ahead from a procurement perspective? Yeah, I certainly think that... Um, uh, as I mentioned with uh, Tornado in particular, Airbus, and this is, I think, quite quite unusual in terms of the some of the more guarded responses that you often get from industry on this side. They, they did mention that there's the, uh, as the, they understand it, there's no uh, imminent uh, change uh, or no imminent contract going to be awarded for Tornado. I suppose what I, what I should mention really is the fact that on the, the contract and the procurement side, uh, there is certainly a, a, a difficulty here with uh, understaffing in Germany, uh, Germany MOD uh, as a whole, because um, I spoke with a source and they had mentioned that, you know, this uh, this is kind of well known within uh within the German industry that there is an understaffing problem. And the fact now that the procurement agencies are going to have to be signing off medical equipment uh, contracts and things of that nature will ultimately mean that, um, you know, the, there's going to be pressure to come for um, contracts that should be awarded in the, the medium to short term. And certainly they're now going to become a lower, lower priority for sure. And probably a few uh, also reiterate on that, that that type of headache uh, isn't being spoken of by the German MOD themselves. Uh, that's from a source that I spoke to uh, within academia and research. So, um, but I, I think it's, it's you've got to hold that up as quite important because we're probably not going to get to the meat and bones of every single uh, difficulty that that's going to be worked through, uh, particularly as uh, COVID nineteen uh, issues move forward. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the idea that we can we can sit here in our in our comfy studio and sort of uh, prophesize as to what might uh, impact industry in the next sort of weeks and months that that's that's a, a little bit of a, a long shot for us. I think what we'll see is is a long drawn out difficult period for industry and everyone involved with the defence military uh, industrial base in in sort of trying to prioritise obviously programmes as as you mentioned that they have working forward to recapitalise fleets to modernise armoured vehicles to 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 redevelop or develop uh, new next gen air vehicles but obviously at the at the first and foremost they have to try and see how they can best contribute. This is defences, this is industry in providing the medical equipment and capabilities, logistical capabilities, for example, that um, countries will need to help fight the virus. Yeah, definitely. I think Germany also is is quite almost an interesting case study um, just because of the fact that their delays and complications, uh, you know, there's almost happened consistently across our land and sea. So I mentioned F1 to Five. There's also the Puma IFA, of course, we know of those problems, and the A400M, um, the, the tanker, the transport aircraft as well. Now, of course, that's a, a multinational problem, and, and that program had, uh, you know, difficulties beyond Germany. You know, so everyone uh, across that, uh, across the consortium in Europe had problems with that. But I, I think now that you're beginning to see, and also because Politically, there's so many highly divisive areas that often come up in, in the German parliament in terms of how they uh, put forward their uh, spending plans and what they spend their money on in defence as well. And, you know, we know, of course, in terms of uh, arming UAVs, you know, they spiked uh, plans to do that uh, in December of, of last year. You know, highly contentious issues we're talking about. Um, and, you know, slightly different, I would say, to, to maybe the UK were, Yes, of course, we kind of speak of their uh, problems and, and delays with procurements and, and things of that nature. But 
I would, and it's a risk of generalizing, I suppose, you know, there's a almost a wide consensus of where the RAF uh, priorities should lie and, you know, where the naval priorities lie uh, cross-party, I, I would say. And yeah. that is absolutely not the case when it comes to, comes to Germany. And yes, we also know that um, history and, you know, that has a huge bearing on this uh, and, you know, repeating those is probably not worth really doing uh, at this point but I do think that uh, Germany definitely is um, certainly to, to keep an eye on developments there because they are h- how things move forward um, in terms of defence um, and a time of crisis is absolutely uh, worth taking note of Yeah, thanks Sim, really, really good uh, analysis, thanks very much for your time, I appreciate it Alright, thanks Rich Coming up on the podcast, VP content Tony Skinner speaks with Shepherd Media's CEO, Darren Lake, about the implications of so many defence exhibitions being delayed or cancelled due to the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. But first, Mayor Nowens, IISS Research Fellow for Chinese Defence Policy and Military Modernisation, discusses China's military developments, how its doctrine supports its aims, and, and the strategic intentions over key infrastructure efforts, such as the Belt and Road and String of Pearls initiatives. We wanted to take a short break into the podcast to tell you about Shepherd Studio. Studio is our branded content offering, which gives industry a more creative way to tell their stories. Shepherd Studio works closely with companies and event organisers in the aerospace and defence industry to provide bespoke co-branded solutions, whether it is supporting a particular campaign content surrounding a major trade show or bringing Studio on board to more effectively tell a company's story. Studio has already been adopted by many of the major defence primes, including Raytheon, Northrop Grumman and Viasat. If you're interested in learning more about Studio projects and how they could benefit your company, please visit us at www.shepherd.studio. Well, joining me is Mayor Nowens, a double IWS Research Fellow for Chinese Defence Policy and Military Modernisation. Mayor, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Richard. So we're obviously going to talk about China. Um, what influences has China had in modernising its military? And I guess the question is, is it doing this with its own with its own blueprint or is it copying the structure of other militaries and applying it to its own? Well, I think that's a great question. Um, The Chinese will undoubtedly say that they are modernizing their military according to their own plans and that everything is unique. Um, But I think a lot of them, if you look at uh, PLA analysts and experts and officials uh, and their writings, um, they will acknowledge the lessons that they've learned from um, looking at both the successes and failures of other militaries, namely that of the United States. And I think a prime example here, of course, is China's push towards something called informationization. Um, So um, looking more towards uh, systems of systems operations and network-centric warfare, which it really took as a lesson from the United States example um, of fighting in the Gulf War. So so has China identified... Uh, I suppose, failures in terms of how the U.S. has gone about conducting operations and how the U.S. has recognized the need to to modernize its own structures. And so China is following suit. Does that does that run the risk of China forever playing catch up to the U.S. in terms of doctrine? That's really interesting. I think that they'll have to find their own way. One thing that China is very keen on not doing, I think, and we'll get to this later, uh, I believe, in your questions, is getting embroiled into um, third party or third country wars and conflicts. So getting bogged down in in other um, conflicts is something that they're very keen to avoid. Um, And that, of course, begs the question of what type of military the PLA will be in the future once it does modernize and and feels more confident as as an actor. Um, But I think there are elements of the PLA and its modernization thus far and its reforms as pushed forward by President Xi Jinping Uh, that are unique. For example, the creation of the Strategic Support Force, which is one that is an entirely dedicated uh, force within the People's Liberation Army, dedicated to cyber operations, uh, space operations, and network, uh, sorry, electronic warfare. Okay, I mean, we've we've known for a long time that China has a quantitative edge over, over NATO, but is the qualitative edge reducing as China's industry and its design and, and its, its sort of tra- uh, testing and training 
improves. I mean, that's certainly the hope on President Xi Jinping's part as the leader of the Central Military Commission. There's two focuses really here that are important to this question. One is um, the ability of the PLA to actually fight and win wars. So a really big emphasis is placed at the moment on um, being able to be combat ready. Uh, and to do so, there's been um, a great push towards um, blue and red teaming to make exercises and drills as realistic as possible, um, even to some extent punishing or um, publicizing uh, drills that were not realistic, where live fire exercises were not included, for example, and, and in that way shaming uh, commanders even that haven't adhered to um, these new requirements. So they certainly hope that. The other element, of course, of uh, the qualitative um, uh, deficit would be the uh, actual systems and platforms that the PLA is able to use. And um, for this, we look at the China at China's defense technological and industrial base and how that is modernizing and reforming under President Xi Jinping. And again, there, there's been a push to integrate the civilian and the defense industries through uh, military-civil fusion. Um, this, I think, will take some time to work out. If it does in the end, is a question, of course, because these are two industries with very different cultures. Um, but it's a national priority at the moment um, under, uh, this, um, under this president. And the IISS last year conducted some research um, that led to a methodology by which we could rank Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises that are present in the defense industry according to their revenue derived from defense products. And in doing so, we were able to show that actually the defense industry, uh, well, that eight of the um, of China's uh, state-owned enterprises that are active in the field of defense rank amongst the top 22 of global defense companies if you look at defense newses. Now, we've heard what we've heard. We've, we've seen examples of other countries around the world um, operating a new sort of hybrid warfare style of operations. And obviously, China is looking and paying close attention to that. Now, I've heard it described as China's three warfares doctrine, which is essentially hybrid warfare. How has that been created by China and what's its purpose? So I think there's a bit of a confusion, actually, between hybrid warfare and the three warfares. Um, the three warfares uh, are a little bit different than just thinking about little blue men uh, in terms of maritime militia that cooperate with the PLA uh, Navy or Coast Guard in the South China Sea or the little green men that Russia um, uh, leverages. So yeah. the three warfares are psychological warfare, which is an operation that influences the target's psychology and behavior. A public opinion warfare is the second one, which is an operation that generates public support domestically and internationally by um, sending out selected information via various media platforms. Um, and legal warfare is, of course, um, the use of laws, international law, uh, in order to um, position one's own political initiatives within a larger framework and more solid position. Um, I would say that these three together are not exactly the same as um, as hybrid warfare, simply because sure. they are there yeah. to shape the way in which shape the environment in which a uh, the PLA operates. We have to understand that whilst the three warfares were entered into the revised political work guidelines of the People's Liberation and uh, People's Liberation Army in two thousand three, actually they are the the three warfares are part of a much larger picture, which is political warfare. And political warfare has been central to the People's Liberation Army and to the um, uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, since the 1960s, 1950s even. Um, so it's not entirely um, comparable, I would say. Sure. I mean, so um, effectively, what you've got with hybrid warfare is a capability. And it sounds like what you've described there with three warfares is more a very much a concept of operations, like an overarching umbrella in which all the all the political guidance and, and, and sort of military structure falls underneath that. Sure, of course. And also the PLA is only one part of that puzzle, right? There are plenty of yeah. other institutions within um, the Chinese system that also work on the three warfares and contribute to the three warfares and shaping that environment in which the mm. army will ultimately operate. Okay, so then what is the role of the People's Liberation Army in China's doctrine? I mean, it's 
quite sizable. It's got a lot of military capabilities, an awful lot of armoured vehicles. Is it is it an occupying force? Is, is it just a blunt instrument? The role of the PLA is is twofold. It has an internal role, um, mm. and it has for, um, I would say, a significant amount of time had an internal role over an external role. Um, and this really goes back to China's doctrine of um, people's warfare, uh, which is drawing the enemy in, wearing them out, and then um, expelling them, and thereby uh, uh, attaining victory. But actually, um, that has transformed these days into something called active defense, whereby the arena of conflict is really pushed away from China's littoral, away from China's shores, further into the Asia-Pacific arena. And so with that, the PLA and um, safeguarding national territory, um, of course, becomes a more of an externally focused force. Um, so it's both internal and external. Of course, the PLA is not just the country's army. It is actually the Communist Party's army. Um, and that, again, is something that's quite different, I think, for Western military observers to understand that the People's Liberation Army is not there just to protect the country. It is also there to ensure political stability for the, for the Communist Party of China and also to ensure the survivability of the Communist Party of China. Um, so I, I would say that the focus at the moment is internal. It's shifting increasingly externally. But again, we have two goals for uh, the, well, we have three goals that the PLA needs to attain. And that is um, by 2021, it needs to have achieved basic mechanization and made progress on informationization. Likely that it will not achieve that goal um, by the end of this year um, to its fullest uh, and by 2035, the PLA, PLA needs to be a fully modernized force. And by 2049, the PLA needs to be a, a global top-tier force that is able to fight and win wars. Now, I would say that the 2035 goal and the 2049 goal are also geographically focused goals. So the 2035 goal is a regional goal um, whereby the PLA seeks to, must, uh, by 2035, be able to displace the United States as the main security actor, the main military actor in the Asia-Pacific region. By 2049, it will have a, a more global role. So although now we're seeing the PLA um, take, well, push, uh, make progress on its ability to conduct operations further and further away from the Chinese coast, such as yeah. its exercises in the Baltic and in the Mediterranean, um, I think these are still um, nascent. They're still early in their um, in their in their long trajectory, and to get to a blue water navy, there's still quite a way to go. Again, as I said at the start of the podcast um, segment, I think that the PLA and Chinese leadership will be wary of being a force that invades other countries um, to suit yeah. national interest or become embroiled into third party conflicts simply because the Chinese don't um, adhere to alliances in the way that Western countries do. Um, its only ally, officially speaking, is the DPRK. Uh, and second of all, I think the Chinese are interested, first and foremost, on, uh, again, maintaining CCP uh, dominance and leadership and um, superiority within the country. And with that comes an economic question. So securing sea lanes is, of course, vital. And that's where I think we'll see Chinese overseas uh, military presence. It's very interesting. Um, sort of contrasting the the efforts of of China's uh, navy to increase its its, its sort of shipples, the U.S. Navy is going through its own sort of very very difficult process of trying to increase the number of ships it has at its disposal. Um, but already China's fleet is far in excess of what the U.S. Navy can actually put to sea. I think China's current fleet of three hundred. 45 vessels, I think it is projected to increase to about 420 by 2035. So that's one of the timelines that you mentioned there. If China can increase the size of its fleet to 420, do you think it's possible that it can surpass the US Navy in terms of sea dominance in the Asia-Pacific region? Interesting, yet difficult question to answer. Um, I think it's, of course, useful to take China's, the progress of China's shipbuilding up to this point and and draw a straight line trajectory to estimate what it could be by 2035. But I think we should be cautious of doing so. Um, China at the moment is undergoing economic slowdown. Um, the current situation of COVID-19 
um, will have had a significant impact on the Chinese economy. Um, we know the defense industry was also paused. Um, we don't quite know to what extent that's coming online now, um, mm -hmm. whilst China recovers um, from um, the impact of the epidemic. So I think we should be cautious by, by making those very straight trajectory lines. Um, of course, the Chinese have an ambition, and that's where I will give them their uh, the benefit of the doubt. There is political will to achieve um, superiority by 2035. The question, of course, is whether that is possible. It's not just shipbuilding that matters here, but it's also the qualitative factor of, um, you know, you have to man the ships. So is recruitment and retention going to um, fall in step with that very rapid shipbuilding um, lineup? Is uh, training, our training and exercises going to be enough? Is the PLA's naval um, doctrine, uh, warfighting doctrine, going to be able to um, be limber enough to change where it needs to um, in order for um, carrier strike groups, for example, to work in coordination? Um, I think these are all questions. And even when we looked at the, um, I think, assumption that some people make of China building six aircraft carriers, there have been reports coming out of China um, last year that actually um, the Chinese will probably build four aircraft carriers, not six in the next few years, because of technical challenges that they're facing and economic and financial challenges that they're facing with their current um, plans of four um, aircraft carriers. So again, um, I would be cautious about those numbers and those trajectories. Just finally, uh, Mayor, this uh, question I've got about uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. Now, I think this, this is obviously an economic plan, a political plan, a, a way to sort of um, make sure that China is able to get the resources it needs to keep growing its economy, export an awful lot of its of its own uh, sort of political uh, ideas and culture. Also, does does the does this Belt and Road Initiative, if it's if it's if uh, a nation is provided with huge loans to provide maritime infrastructure uh, in terms of ports, and then these nations are unable to repay these loans. Does this, this in theory, give, potentially gives China access to a number of different naval bases in regions and oceans that maybe it wouldn't have otherwise been able to get access to? So if this is a valid concern, is there a potential counter to the militarization of the Belt and Road Initiative? Um, the militarization of the Belt and Road Initiative is a widely, widely discussed topic. And when it comes to the string of pearls theory that um, you're referring to, which is that China will build um, ports and invest in port infrastructure um, throughout the Indian Ocean in order to use such ports as dual use facilities um, for the PLA Navy and thereby dominate um, the region, I think that this is something that we haven't really seen happen yet. Um, what I think is also important is how we think about um, the PLA Navy and again, what type of role it will play at the moment in terms of securing Belt and Road Initiative projects. Um, that's more of what I would think about when I think about the security around the Belt and Road Initiative is, um, is how these projects and, and investments themselves are being secured from possible attack and threats um, as they are being, uh, as these investments do take place in, in increasingly unstable countries um, and areas of conflict. And here we see the role of the pri of Chinese private security companies um, gaining, um, uh, gaining ground. Um, and again, not uh, the case of boots on the ground. Now, will China need bases for a blue water navy? Will it need access to ports for maintenance and repair? Of course it will, um, as a logistic necessity, but um, I question when that will happen. And I think we also need to think a little bit more carefully about um, which ports we consider. Um, not every port that China invests in is the same. Not every investment project is the same. Um, China participates import projects from construction of uh, entirely new ports to uh, revamping existing ports. Um, some of them don't involve construction at all, and it's just an investment in the port, port authority. So then again, you need to question, well, what level of investment is that? Does, China, does a Chinese company or a state-owned enterprise become a majority stakeholder in a port authority? And what does that mean for control over that port? Um, 
But again, um, will China need bases and port access for a Blue Water Navy? Yes. Again, the question for me is when, for me at the moment, um, again, the priority for the PLA is closer to home than, um, than more globally. Uh, Taiwan is an outstanding problem for the PLA and for the Chinese leadership. Um, similarly, you know, the, the concerns around territorial integrity, Hong Kong, South China Sea, East China Sea, these are all the most pressing core interests that the PLA will be focusing on for the next few years until they're resolved. Fascinating discussion, Maya Nowins. Thank you very much. IISS Research Fellow for Chinese Defence Policy and Defence Policy, I should say, and Military Modernisation. Maya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Hey, did you know that Shepherd Media is fully digital? Yeah, of course. I've already downloaded the app. I love that I can access high-quality stories anywhere anytime. That's good for when you're deployed, right? I actually like that the stories don't waste my time. It's like the editors know what and when I want to read. And that you don't have to read them. You can watch a video or check out the infographics. Yeah, it's ace. Did you see that piece on Iran? That piece on the Tor M1 air defense system where they outline? Download the free Shepherd News app on the App Store and Google Play, and you can get three months half price on Shepherd Premium News for a limited time. So as we've been hearing, um, the world continues to suffer from the ongoing coronavirus. A lot of the world now is in lockdown. There's wide-ranging long-term ramifications that will only become clear in the near term. We want to take, I guess, a narrower look at our piece of the world, which is the defence industry. Life's essentially ground to a halt. So to chat through what it means for us as a business and for the wider industry, I've got on the line Darren Lake, who's the CEO here at Shepherds. Hey, Tony. Darren, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. So just to kick things off, we're all working from home. I'm once again under my duvet recording this. You know, how is this affecting business and um, what's life like at Shepherd at the moment? Well, um, I'm not quite under my duvet, um, although I have gone somewhere with some more soft furnishings. So hopefully uh, the recording quality is um, better. Uh, for, for us, it's been a relatively natural transition. Um, we've been a business that's worked remotely and worked from home quite a lot. Um, so we were relatively well prepared as a business to move uh, to working from home. From our point of view, um, it's also been uh, relatively good that we made that digital transition that we talked about last time I was on the podcast at the beginning of the year. It means we can continue to reach the audiences um, that we serve, um, even now that they're all working from home and, you know, they wouldn't be picking up copies of a magazine in the office because nobody's in an office at the moment. Yeah, I guess we don't have a crystal ball to have predicted uh, this is going to happen. I mean, yeah, as we talked about last time, the you know, the, the move to digital was obviously to a reflection of changing reading habits anyway. Mm-hmm. Certainly in terms of the podcast views, we had a massive spike last week, I guess, as people were at home looking for things to do. You know, our bread, our bread and butter, I guess, is attending trade shows, defense exhibitions. You know, what do we know to date about the status of, of some of the big um, events like, you know, Eurostory and Farnborough? Yeah, well, you know, trade press and and trade shows go hand in hand, right? And we were just about to ramp up into um, the main spring and early summer trade show um, schedule, um, which is where we get to see customers and clients, where we get the journalists out there to ask the awkward questions of the companies. Uh, At the moment, my feeling with this, looking into my crystal ball, is that um, there won't be any uh, defence exhibitions certainly at least until the back half of summer. So sort of talking August onwards. Um, so I think, you know, you know, Farnborough has been cancelled. About the only one that's not um, actually officially cancelled at the moment is Eurocetri. And I just don't see at this point something in June happening. It's hard to sort of uh, to gauge or to, to overstate the ramifications here um, in terms of what it means for an industry. I, you know, I guess my first trade show was the Paris Year Show in 2005. And, and since then, my kind of annual schedule has been dictated by the cycle of these shows. Um, what are companies going to miss in terms of not being able to go engage with the industry, engage with the community, um, you know, at these big events? Well, it's something we, we talked about as a team yesterday, and, um, and we sort of tried to classify what people were looking for um, in, a trade, in this trade show environment, what they were going to those trade shows for. 
as a business. Um, I think, you know, our clients have always been looking at trade shows for, you know, brand messaging, um, for product launches, um, for uh, informing people about existing products that they have, um, for generating new leads for their business, and and also importantly for renewing uh, their contacts with an existing clients and existing customers. So th- mm-hmm. I think those are the things that we certainly go to a trade show for, and I think that's a reflection of why anybody really goes to a trade show. When the we, we had these last recession, certainly a lot, a lot of the defence budgets were, were were reduced, sort of contracted, and companies at that point downgraded their prices. Some companies pulled out of the events trade show circuit. Um, you know the the, the, major, the main ones, and there was a, an expectation that maybe a lot of other companies would sort of follow, but but that didn't really happen back then. You know, so so obviously, I guess what I'm trying to say is companies still value the physical presence of being able to see a lot of people in one place, um, you know, get their brand awareness out there. Are companies looking at alternative me- measures, alternative means to, um, you know, to engage with the community? Yeah, I mean, this has been one of these perennial discussions, hasn't it? I mean, you know, how useful, what are trade shows for? Is the is the dawn of the internet going to change the, the need for business travel um, you know, are we moving to a future of virtual events? And I, you know, we're certainly not there yet. The technology isn't there to do that. Um, human interactions, you don't get those. And I think that's pr- crucially one of the most important things. Mm-hmm. From what I've seen so far, companies are approaching this in, in different ways. Um, some are hunkering down and just deciding that without the trade shows, it's very difficult to do any kind of marketing. I think that's probably a mistake. I think some of the companies I've seen doing interesting things are sort of, um, looking at things like using, um, zoom or any other sort of video conferencing type of thing to do sort of meets and greets and, and, briefings and have interesting discussions that they would otherwise be having at shows um, and trying to reach the audiences um, that they want to hear those messages. I think that's where we can crucially play a good part because, you know, what we do is develop audiences and, and develop content that engages audiences. So that's where we're focusing our time and effort at the moment. It, it seems um, perhaps a little bit crass to talk about opportunities in, in a crisis like this, but but there is potentially opportunities for the trade press to start to, you know, provide some of those solutions. I think if we're respectful, if we do it in the right way and we do it in a way that aligns with our customer bases, needs and requirements, um, then it's certainly something we can help to facilitate. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're right. Nobody wants to take advantage of the situation. Um, but um, those of us who've invested in, um various types of uh, engagement, various types of content, various types of um, audience segmentation are in a position to help industry through what is going to be a very difficult and probably protracted crisis. So crystal ball gazing again, when when would you expect uh, the community to be able to get back together again? I mean, if we sort of look, you know, there are very few events in August and September anyway, so is it likely going to be AUSA in, in October? I think for the sort of the global um, land sector side of things, I think that's probably certainly going to be the case. I think it still waits to be seen whether some of the events that have been moved to sort of the August timeframe um, actually can happen. Um, there's a lot of things to worry about in terms of, you know, network capacity on airlines and all those kinds of things, how quickly things get back to normal. Um, but I'm certainly saying, you know, what we're looking around sort of AUSA, those end of year shows. Um, and then from the aerospace side of things, we may well be looking, you know, further ahead into um, next year before we get back to some semblance of normal. I guess what we do know at this stage is that the entire crisis itself has given everything a shake up, um, not least the defence industry. So, Looking at the trade show circuit into next year, life will likely be very different. Um, Darren, any final thoughts before we sign off? Um, yeah, I think, you know, finally, all I'd like to say really is that, you know, we all need to do the socially responsible thing at the moment uh, and do what we're being asked to do. And 
that's the best that any of us can do at the moment. Um, hopefully we'll be back or I'll be back or you might let me back on the podcast um, to have another conversation in, in a few weeks time to see how we're doing and the kind of things that we're doing. Um, but apart from that, I just say everybody stay safe. So welcome to this week's Industry Voice segment, which is a part of the show that's brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Nemo. So I'm Tony Skinner, VP of Content here at Shift Media, and I'm on the phone with Andre Lond, who is the SVP of Communications for Nemo. So good afternoon, Andre. Good afternoon, Tony. So it's the strangest of times uh, at the moment. I mean, I'm recording Indeed. in my bedroom under a duvet. Hopefully my, my toddler of a son won't make too much noise. You know, clearly the impact of COVID-19, the coronavirus, continues to make a huge global impact. In a lot of ways, there's really nothing else to talk about. But I think just things mm-hmm. a little bit lighter this week, it would be good perhaps to chat about some of the working from home strategies. You know, certainly, um, you know, as, as a company, we are, we're finding sort of new ways to uh, keep in touch with our employees. You know, I, I'm finding that uh, getting into routines very helpful. I mean, at mm-hmm. your end, how are you guys sort of finding things? Yeah, we're looking at many of the same things, right? Uh, like as you are, as I think pretty much every other company in the world is doing right now. Uh, but what we've uh, started looking at is not just working from home, but it's also leading from home. Uh, because it's the transition into working from home is, is just as big for leaders, and it does pose even greater demands on, on the leaders in terms of how they should and need to follow up their employees. Uh, there was some research that I, I had learned of last week, which says that after about 10 days of working from home, you will see a significant increase in stress and uh, anxiety among at least parts of your workforce, uh, which could actually persist long after um, this current situation is ended. Mm-hmm. It's just the isolation, it's the sense of being cut off from your daily routines, from your colleagues. I have to remember for a lot of people, uh, their office is a very important part of their daily social life. This is where they meet the closest, some people they spend the most time with ever. Mm-hmm. And being cut off from them uh, for so long without really having an alternative, they can't really go on vacation, they can't really leave, they have to still work. That's a, that's a major shift. And I, I guess there's, there's two, well, there's, there's various elements to it. I mean, one, I guess, is how the managers manage their direct reports um, and making sure that they're, you know, they're getting the feedback they need and, um, you know, that, that, that they feel secure with, with the, the tasks they're carrying out. Mm. The other is, I guess, the the more socialization, the more social part of the job. Yes. Your colleagues going for a cup of tea, you know, chatting to people in the staff room, you know, all that aspect, which mm-hmm. you, I guess you don't realize how much you rely on it until it's gone, really, do you? No, not, not at all. And, in an office environment, you can always re- rely on uh, the employee themselves and their direct colleagues, perhaps helping each other with this. They'll head out for a cup of tea together, or they'll have some sort of social events uh, or just conversations by, when they meet around the, the coffee machine. That's harder to achieve in a digital environment, and you as a manager really have to lean in to, uh, to make sure that happens. Uh, we've set up a five specific guidelines for our managers. uh, And and they mainly go on, like, we have to be very clear in terms of expectations and goals, uh, put structure into communications and meetings, make sure they have regular check-ins, that people will have ownership to their own uh, schedules and and goals and agendas and what they're going to achieve. And also in terms of how how you're going to give feedback but what you just mentioned there, like you have to deal with the fact of, well, it's going to be boredom. You sit it alone. Uh, and your tasks can end up feeling very monotonous. Uh, there's no break in terms of like moving physically to a meeting room and back and forth. Uh, and just that social isolation that we're social distancing that we're all being encouraged to do uh, takes a toll. Mm-hmm. So um, as a leader, you have to look at both the work and the person. And much more so than you would do in a normal office environment. And I guess the other element, which is interesting, um, is the role that technology has played. You know, mm-hmm. 
you know, we, we use sort of video conferencing, I guess, sparingly, but we've really embraced mm -hmm. the last sort of two weeks. Um, and pretty much every, I mean, I think I've had more meetings over the last couple of days over video conference than I have in person in the office. Um, but, you know, but they are over video, so you can see the other person and you get all those, yes. you know, the non-verbal cues, um, yeah. which are important, you know, which you obviously lose in an email or sort of written communications. Yes, exactly. And that's also important to try and maintain. It's just seeing a face and encouraging people, even though like, oh, I'm just sitting at home. I haven't really I've done all my uh, prep that I would do before I leave the house normally. But actually seeing a face and communicating by video rather than audio, it's it's so important. It's a very, very different thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, even though it's tempting to just do things by voice, do some, you should sometimes actually insist on it that you need to put up the camera and so on. I think what we've learned in our company is that when this all uh, passes, then we are going to at least prepare for or, and equip offices and everything even better than we have today for video conferencing, facilitate it much more. Because we're seeing that it does have some benefits and it allows you to do so, a lot of meetings and, and follow up much more regularly than you would have done if you had well, to kind of like, okay, now we have to set up time to go into that meeting, have to physically move and so on. There's certain benefits to it also that we can uh, kind of retain long term, even after all this is done and we can hopefully return more or less to, to normal operations. Mm -hmm. There's certain things that we, perhaps we will take with us as lessons learned, things we can carry on later. Yeah, certainly there are, I'm sure there's a, a fair proportion of people that have never worked from home before for any mm -hmm. time, if at all. So, I mean, their exposure to, you know, to the practice, I guess the like you say, the organizations getting themselves set up for this, uh, you know, for this way of working. Yeah, I'm sure these these effects will be long lasting. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of people who used to have this like fear of like, oh, I can never get the video to work. I can never get the screen sharing to work and so on and so on. Well, now you can't be forced to, to figure that out. And I think there's a lot of people who uh, now after a couple of weeks of this, the, the threshold is much lower for doing this. And and you know nowadays they're very reliable services. I mean I won't I won't name check the one we, that we use, but um, but it's a very good uh, good software. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and sort of no excuses these days, I guess. Nope. And even less so after this. Now everyone's been through it. Everyone's tested. Everyone's uh, tried. And okay, I can do this. It's actually possible. We're actually it's actually possible to do this effectively. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of long term effects this is going to cause. Andre, we'll check in with you again next time. Um, I'm sure there'll be other Indeed. ramifications from the current crisis um, that we'll be, be able to talk about. But um, in the meantime, you stay safe and um, yeah, enjoy working from home. Likewise. Speak soon. This episode of the Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Namo. As always, a big thanks to everyone that took the time in being a part of the episode. And for our listeners, make sure you like and subscribe and leave a review on iTunes and tell a friend or a colleague about the podcast. Until next week, thanks for listening. 